Hello, everyone. I'm Barry Boyce, Editor-in-Chief of Mindful Magazine and Mindful.org. Um, and this is the Point of View podcast. We're here today with my very good friend, Frank Ostaseski, who in 1987 co-founded Zen Hospice in San Francisco, and then in 2005 co-founded uh, Meta Institute. And he's just come out with a book uh, detailing his work with um, people who are dying. It's called The Five Invitations, Discovering What Death Can Teach Us About Living Fully. And Frank is here today to talk about um, what he's learned from his work. And um, I'd like to start out, Frank, by asking you uh, how you got started in this work. You know, I, I think it was a long and uh, winding road that got me here. Um, I, I, probably the truth is we get called to this work, you know. It's not something we choose on a, you know, high school, uh, you know, um, skill set exam. My own mother died when I was quite young, about 16, and my dad a few years later. So that was, gave me an early relationship with death. Later, I worked in refugee camps in southern Mexico, refugees fleeing from Central America. Buddhism and its study of impermanence was an early influence for me. And then the AIDS epidemic hit in San Francisco. We had 30,000 people die of this illness, 30,000 people in the Bay Area alone. And so I kind of cut my teeth, if you will, on that, um, um, caring for people. We had no idea what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along. You know, There were no services in place in those days. And so I was in the, one of the early responders and on the front lines of that epidemic. Yeah. So all of these were factors that sort of drew me into this work, you know. But my life has always been, had a stream of service through it. You know, compassionate action has always been the, the focal point of my life, I'd say. Yeah. So what would you say that, what kept you going in this work? I mean, people who work in these difficult kind of situations where they see the kind of pain um, that, you know, on the surface, it, it, we feel like we couldn't handle that. I mean, in your book, you talk about uh, a son dying of AIDS who's been rejected by his father. And can you say a little bit, tell us a little bit about that story. And then and I want well, to well, you know, the, try to do something like that and keep going. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's in hospice. First of all, we began by working with people who were living on the margins of society, people who lived on the streets. And um, they didn't trust very much. And so if I was going to be of any help to them, first of all, I had to be clear about my intention and real. You know, they wanted authentic relationship. So yeah, I worked with people who had um, nothing. You know, I changed diapers on park benches behind City Hall. But I also worked with people with enormous political power and great health insurance and, you know, um, uh, intact families. But then there were people like um, Nguyen, a Vietnamese guy who was some ghosts. And uh, Isaiah, his roommate, who was very comforted by visits from his dead mother. And then there was this, this, um, this family that you spoke of, a man I'd worked with. He was a hemophiliac, and he contracted HIV through a blood transfusion. But the year before this, he had disowned his gay son, who also was diagnosed with AIDS. And now the two of them were in twin beds in a single room, 
being cared for by Agnes, uh, the husband's wife and the mother's, the, son, uh, the son's mother. And, you know, it was incredibly difficult and challenging and moving also, beautiful, you know. The thing is that even, even in really difficult stuff, you know, in situations like the ones I'm describing, there are moments of great beauty. There are moments of great tenderness and where people come forward and blossom or where compassion shows up in ways that you couldn't have imagined. And this is part of what keeps me going. But also, you know, very years ago, I, I mentored with, with Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she would bring me to her workshops and I would sit in the back of them. And in those days, the workshops were um, mostly people who were dying or suffering a great loss. And so she would sit me in the back of the room and I would do this practice in the back of the room as a way of kind of, I thought, helping the room. But really, it was just a way to protect myself. It was just a way to, for me to keep suffering at arm's length. And one night, I, I left one of those workshops and I went down the dirt path back to my room and I just fell down on my knees and started to cry. And I just wept, you know. And Elizabeth came along, you know, with a cigarette and a cup of coffee. And, and, uh, and she leaned over to me and she said, oh, you were trying to carry their pain. You were trying to hold their pain. You can't do that. You have to let their pain move through you. And that was a really great teaching and understanding for me that, that buoyed me through the rest of my work for the last 30 years, really. We can't hold the other person's pain. We can't take it on in that way. It's not ours. We can be empathetic with it. We can compassionately respond to it. But we have to let it move through us. Is, so do you respect that distinction between, you know, people say there's compassion fatigue, but what they are often saying uh, now is that, well, really you can have empathy fatigue. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, we get tied up, tangled up in this language, but yeah, I think people get empathetically overloaded. You know, we feel with the other person and we feel so much that we get merged with them. And then it's like two depressed people down a well without a ladder. You know, you can't help them very much. So you have to be able to stay in your own seat. You have to know that I'm over here and you're over there and there is a common ground in our suffering, but it's your suffering. And so if I get lost in it, I won't be able to help you. So compassion is, you know, some kind of stability that allows me then to use that empathy as a bridge, but then to, you know, take skillful and, and, and wise action. So you've already talked a bit about um, some things you learned early on. Um, what would you say you've learned from this work? I'm sure you've learned a great deal, but you had to, had to pick a few things that come to mind this morning. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the thing that I've learned the most, I think, is that ordinary people find within themselves the resources, the strength, the compassion to meet the impossible in extraordinary ways. And that's what I've seen time and again, you know. Um, people who didn't think they were prepared for this, who had no training for this, they respond either to their own illness or to the caring for a loved one in remarkable ways. You know, we're, we're talking about healthcare, you know, um, reform in the United States. Most of the health care that's being provided in this country is being provided by people with no training at all. Their family members in France, 45 million Americans are caring for a family member or a friend. Yeah? They've had no training whatsoever except their, the, the, the wise counsel of their good hearts, you know, and the dedication of their innate generosity and, 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 and um, 
and kindness. Well, how, you know, how do you think they're doing? I think they're, you know, struggling, you know, like the rest of us. I think we're sort of finding our way through it, you know. But, you know, let's go back to the AIDS epidemic as an example. For me, it's one of the greatest spiritual movements that happened or spiritual events that happened in the 20th century. That regular people, people who never would have been involved in caregiving, you know, they were lawyers and insurance salesmen and, and, and you know, they were only concerned about how tight their butts were, you know, really, you know, they, they, it was all about attraction, you know. And I don't mean to be, you know, to uh, demean that, but what I'm suggesting is that people rose up and started caring for each other in ways that they never, never, never thought they could. You know, support groups happened. There was no systems in place. People did this. Ordinary people like you and me created these systems. And that became a model for, you know, taking care of people in our country. It's been followed in the examples that's happened in the breast cancer movement. It's just a fine example. They modeled what they're doing on what happened in the HIV epidemic. So, yeah, ordinary people. The other is that, you know, that we underestimate the simple, the, the, the power of simple human presence. You know, we're always looking for the next skill set, the thing to do. And we underestimate the power of just sitting with someone. You know, the quiet, kind, tender being with. You know, the holding of a hand, listening to a lifetime of stories that have been lived and are now ending. The simplicity of that. Often, though, we feel quite awkward. Um, you feel like, you know, you want to be saying, you know, the right thing or, or bring in the right book or read the, the um, you know, this guidebook about death or mm -hmm. you want to often, you know, when I've been when my mother was dying, I would see folks would come to the room and they would want to talk a lot. Um, you know, what is that kind of um, impulse and how do you counsel in, in dealing with that? I mean, you were saying that we underestimate the power of human presence, but, you know, it's an awkward situation. It is awkward oftentimes because, well, first of all, it's been hidden from us. And so we don't have much experience with it. And so when we come in, we're walking into a situation where, you know, we don't know what to do. And so we rely on old habits. You know, we get nervous. And so we start yakking away. Um, one of the problems, I think, is, is that we start, we walk into a room where someone is dying and we see them as a dying person. <laughs> and I think this is actually an error. Not to see them as a person who's going through the experience of dying. It's not just semantical. You know, we give them an identity of a dying person and that scares us. Yeah. And so, you know, I think to be, uh, to walk in the room and see the same person that we've always loved and cared for or was our friend, you know, and treat them, you know, not as a dying person, but as Barry and Frank, as, as the people that we are, and meet them there. That's the first place to begin, you know. Uh, people can't be dying all the time. You know, they just have to have a regular life. And so meet them where they are. That's the first thing. Um, and then... Um, Second thing is monitor your own anxiety, you know, and don't expect the person who's in the bed to take care of you. In other words, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling, you know, nervous, sense your body a little bit, feel your breath a little bit, settle, calm down, you know. Uh, ask more questions than giving 
you know, I, I ask more questions than I do give answers. Yeah. I inquire, I get curious. I have a sense of wonder when I'm with someone. So rather than my feeling like I have to give them some kind of counsel, I actually want to know how they're doing, how they're meeting this experience. And, uh, and what I find is that people um, relax in my presence because they're, they know I'm not so afraid of, their, of what's happening for them. So you were talking about asking questions. This reminds me that one of your invitations is about knowledge and knowing and, um, you know, not presuming that you know what's going on. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, you know, yeah. you know, you've been very helpful to me when yeah. I've had friends who were dying and, you know, give me that kind of counsel that, well, when I walk into a room where someone is dying, I don't pretend to know what that experience is. I don't know. They know, you know. So I have to find out from them what's actually useful. If I walk in with all my knowing, if I walk in with all my expertise, you know, if I walk in with all my tools, you know, I have a lot of tools, Barry. I've been at this for three decades. But if I place that toolbox down between me and a client, one of us is sure to trip over it, you know. <laughs> So, so I don't lead with my tools. I lead with my humanity. You know, I put my tools behind me. If I need one, I can pull them out of my back pocket. So to walk in the room with an open mind, a mind that's ready and receptive, actually, it's curious, maybe full of wonder. Um, you know, this is what uh, the Buddhists speak about, beginner's mind or don't know mind, a mind that's not so full of, full of itself. Yeah. Um, ignorance is not not knowing. Ignorance is misperception. Yeah? Ignorance is we know something, but it's the wrong thing. Yeah? And so, so uh, that's often what's happening in a, in, a, in a room where someone's dying. You know, we come in with all our ideas. Um, it's okay to say, I don't know what to say here. It's all right to say, I don't know. Give me an example, yeah. Frank, where that like um, perhaps the first time that you dealt with a child who had yeah. done or, you know. Yeah. Well, well, the first image that's just coming to mind is a friend of mine who was a um, social worker and for a woman that had no family. And this woman was in a nursing home and the, she was acting out one night and screaming, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And the staff didn't know what to do. So they called the social worker and the social worker came down at two in the morning and came over to her bedside, and the woman was screaming, I don't know what to do. And the social worker just leaned into her and said, oh, Agnes, I don't know what to do either. <laughs> and Agnes settled down, you know. She just needed someone to meet her where she was, you know, not to fix it, yeah. Yeah, we don't, um, you know, we walk into situations that we've never walked into before. I, I, I got called by on the phone one day by a man, and he said, I understand that you could help keep our son at home after he dies. And I said, yes, I could do that. I could help you with that. And he said, well, could you come now? Our son has just died. Wow. Seven years old. So I went to their house. I had never been, I never met this family before. I never met this child before. And I walked in the room and following my intuition, I went over to the bed. I leaned over and I kissed him on the forehead. And when I did this, the whole room broke into tears. Because while everybody had cared for him with great love, nobody had touched him since he died. 
And so we talked, this mom and dad and I, about this ritual that we've done in all traditions for millennium, which is to bathe the body, to care for the body. And so they were great gardeners, and they got rose geraniums and mm, sage and other herbs from their garden. And we made a sweet basin of, of uh, herbs and flowers. And we began to bathe this body, this, this boy's body. And the mom and dad did it. And the mom washed him from the back of his head down his back. And she cared for every little scratch and nick with such loving attention, you know. And sometimes the dad couldn't do it. You know, he, it was too much for him. So he'd go and stand by the window and look out into the garden. It took a long time to bathe this boy. It took a few hours. And sometimes his mother would look at me with these beseeching eyes to say, will I survive this? Can any mother survive this? And my job was to hand her another washcloth and send her back to her child, to go back into the suffering, because that's where the healing's always found. It's always found in the middle of the suffering. This mom was so kind and exquisite and caring for her child. And, and so by the time she got to his face and washed his face, it was so intimate between them. There was no separation between them. Maybe like the moment when he was born, you know, where mother and child are one being in a way. That's how it was in this moment. It was so tender, you know, so beautiful. Wow. That's you know, I, I went home that night, Barry, and um, I held my own son very careful, very close. He was seven years old at the time, yeah. So one of the things that happens in this work, you were asking me what I learned, is when I see how precarious this life actually is, it helps me to appreciate how precious it is. And then I don't want to waste a moment. Then I want to tell the people I love that I love them. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, there's a couple of things I want to mine there that is around what I was saying about the healing happens when you go into the suffering, yeah. toward the suffering. And um, at one point, you know, you had said that, you know, that you were uh, holding the, the pain at arm's length. Yeah. That yeah, in this doing a loving kindness practice in your mind, it's actually a mechanism for holding it at arm's length. Yeah. Now it seems, you know, as you tell that story of going over there and going to right up to that child and kissing him on the head and helping to bathe the body, you know, I shudder at the thought, you know, that I, I, I I have trouble imagining that I'd be able to do that. And it feels to me like we have a, a kind of a built-in avoidance mechanism um, to uh, stay away from yeah. the things that are painful. And, and one can really justify that in your mind. I can't handle it, yeah. uh, you're, you're saying in your mind. You, know, you might say that, I'd like to, I feel, but I can't handle it. Um, you know, how do you, I mean, how do you get uh, past that? How does yeah. one pass that? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, we should acknowledge that this is perfectly normal and natural and even helpful you know, in our, to our species. You know, our instinctual drives are important, you know, and they, uh, they do protect us uh, in some very important ways. So I think we don't try and override that. 
I don't think we try and tough it out or, you know, going on our white horse, you know, charging in, you know. I think what we do is we get really familiar with it. We get intimate with it. We get, we turn toward our own reactivity. And mindfully, kindly, warmly, say, well, what is it? What is it that's scaring me here, you know? And here's the thing. When you're scared, Barry, don't you know you're scared? Yeah, you definitely feel it. Right, right. Beautiful. So that means that there's some part of you that's not scared. The part of you that's aware, right. The part that's aware, that's mindful of being scared is not scared. And we can opt, we can train ourselves to function from that part of our being. doesn't mean that the fear goes away. It just means that the fear is not the only thing in the room. Yeah. So we can have the fear and still function. We can have the fear and stay present. Yeah. And in fact, having the fear is important because it helps us to build an empathetic bridge to the other person because they're afraid too. Yeah. And so, you know, if we haven't studied our fear, if we don't know something about our fear, and we walk in the room where somebody's scared and we say, I understand, they're going to smell our insincerity and our sentimentality, and we're not going to be trustworthy for them. So we have to investigate our own pain. We have to investigate our own grief and fear. So when I'm working with a dying, I'm always looking at my own grief. I'm always looking at my own fear. But I also trust and know, after many years, that it's not the only thing in the room. It's not the only thing in the room. Now, when I say go towards suffering, I don't mean in some brutal, um, uh, hard-hearted way. I mean approach it. Walk closer to it. Hold hands with it. Yeah? Develop a handshake relationship with it. Yeah? Now, in some cases, we can't do that. And we need to acknowledge that. If we've had a lot of trauma, for example, around a particular kind of pain, we're going to become a reverberating chamber when we experience or witness that pain in somebody else. And in, that, in those situations, we have to be really, really tender with ourselves. We might need to withdraw from the situation. We might need to resource some place of safety in us so that we can develop some equilibrium that will allow us to then turn back toward this experience. So I think that, um, you know, there's no hard and fast rules around these things. But generally speaking, compassion arises out of the relationship with suffering. Not much much relationship with suffering, not much compassion. So it seems to me you're counseling not... Uh, heroic grand gestures, but something like easy stages. Yeah, I think so. I think we got to, you know, sometimes the closest we can get to a room where someone is dying is the hallway, you know, and that's as, that may be as far as we get that day, you know, and we say hello to the family and we say, I'll be back on Tuesday, you know, and that's enough. Look, in, in this world of mindfulness and spiritual lives, you know, we talk a lot about compassion, but we don't talk about how sometimes we get exhausted by compassion and when we get scared and we can't find our compassion. You know, when I was working at the height of the AIDS epidemic, I was with 30, 40, 50 people sometimes in a week that died. And that was devastating for me. So I did three things. The first thing I did was I went back to my meditation cushion and I practiced my mindfulness. I learned to get familiar with what was hurting me. And I developed my capacity for self-awareness. The second thing I did was I got body work once a week. I went to a massage practitioner 
And he didn't do a whole bunch of fancy stuff for me. He did, I did, he'd just say to me, where should we work today? And I'd say, my shoulder, just my shoulder. And he just put his hand on me. And when he would, I'd start to cry. And there was something about the relationship with him and his making physical contact with me that really helped me. And I just cried, you know? And that was important. It was a kind of important catharsis for me. And, and I couldn't do it alone. I needed the relationship to do it, yeah. And then the third thing I would do is I would go to this hospital, San Francisco General, where I knew the nurses. And there I would go to the maternity ward where there were babies who were born to mothers addicted to crack. And they would give me these babies. And I would sit in a rocking chair for about an hour before I'd go home to my own children. I would rock these babies. I just rock them back and forth, you know. And it was something about being able to soothe the suffering in that moment and really get them to help them to come to a place of relaxation. That was very important to me because there was other kinds of suffering that I couldn't relieve. I couldn't relieve it, you know? You know, you said earlier that one of the difficulties we have with death is that it's hidden from us. And of course, you know, lots been written about that, going back to, you know, Jessica Mitchell and the American way of death. Yeah, Ernest Becker, right? The denial of death. Yeah. And, um, so, one, in what way is death hidden from us? And are we, um, as some people say, a death-denying culture? Are we, um, so? Well, I mean, I could make a case, and we could all make a case for our society being death-denying, you know, that we're youth-oriented and youth-focused, et cetera. But it's not my experience, actually. My experience is that individuals are hungry to talk about dying. They really want to talk about it. They want to know what's the wisdom that dying has to teach us about living fully. They want to know how to care for their loved ones who are, you know, um, sick. They want to know what are the, you know, I'm working with a lot of 35-year-olds now, and they want to know what do you learn there at the time of dying that I should know now in my life. So I think people are hungry to talk about this. It's just that we've made it so complex, and, you know, we've, we've, we've given dying over to, doctors and nurses and undertakers yeah and we, and in so doing we've we've absented ourselves from the most important conversation of our life actually i'm with people sometimes in hospitals you know the the, the tool that's most used in hospitals for measuring death is that monitor right the up and down graph that tracks the breathing and the heart rate right and, you know, I, I've been with family members who sit there and watch their loved ones dying on TV, you know? They're waiting for that dreaded flat line to come, you know, that they saw on some television show. Yeah. Right. Instead of becoming intimate with the person that's in the bed, the person that they love, you know? So we've scared ourselves around dying. But I, my sense is that that's changing. It's changing culturally. There's many more books about it. People are having there's death cafes and death over dinner and all these fantastic, you know, um, venues that are emerging now and and books like mine that are out there and people are really responding to because they want to know what does death have to show me about life that that even though in the main we've created a culture to insulate ourselves from death given half a chance somebody is most individuals most folks are actually eager to yeah yeah, especially if they can speak to someone who's not so afraid of it, you know? That's been my experience. You know, when I'm with people who are dying, you know, their relatives come in and don't want to talk to them about it. I go in the room and I'm, they're happy to talk to me about it. You know, I always ask people, for example, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And it's, you know, 
it's a really good question to ask because we all have some story about what happens after we die. And that story is shaping the way in which we die and I think even the way in which we lead our lives. So I engage people in those stories, I mean those conversations rather, and we have fantastic explorations together. You know, something yeah. I learned from you, I don't know, more than a decade ago, um, was about how people in the latter stages of their life who know that they're dying or certainly can sense they're dying, um, they want to talk. Yeah. And, you know, you, in the hospice, you learn to allow people the room to tell their story, so to speak. Um, you know, it was about leaving that kind of space rather than filling it up. And so when I was visiting my mother uh -huh. uh, repeatedly in the last years of her life, I took to, uh, she was in a nursing home that was on the side of a mountain. So I would take her for a drive. Huh. And um, <clears throat> finally, you know, it was a captive situation. There was no way that I could turn away and, you know, be thinking about work. And we were driving through the countryside. It was her time. And, and finally, we'd been doing this for a few years. She suddenly said, Barry, what do you think happens when you mm. die? Mm. And it was uh, by leaving that amount of space. And in fact, in a way, it was years of space. Because mm. I never pushed it. Um, but I stayed there. And it was a, it was a revelation. Mm. Um, and she didn't want a definitive answer. Yeah. We were watching clouds, you know, moving in the sky. And, um, you know, she didn't want a textbook answer. She said, I know what they taught me when I was a kid in church, but I'm not so sure I believe that. And, uh, you know, that experience of leaving space is, I mean, it's been, has, is that a lot of what you've done over the years? Well, first of all, I just want to say how beautiful it is. Thank you for sharing that and how beautiful that you did that that you allowed her to have, you know, that you allowed both of yourselves to have that space. And it sounds like her question wasn't looking for an answer, but rather an invitation for you to join her in reflection. Yeah. And, and just a quiet reverie. I'm like, yeah, I wonder what happens, you know? It has a sense of wonder about it, you know? And so that's a really, you know, we, kill, we would kill that wonder if we came in with some textbook answer, yeah? Yeah, now that's really interesting because, and I think because it had taken years to do it and I had some good counsel, um, I sensed intuitively right away that this is us exploring this territory together as if we're driving through it. Yeah, right. You were looking, she was looking right at it. You yeah, know? and I'm, she's yeah. looking at it now. You know, you, you go to a nursing home in America, anywhere, and you find people looking out the window. And, you know, we come over to them and say, do you want to play bingo? You know, or we say, uh, you know, remember when you used to go to Coney Island and ride the roller coasters? And what's your favorite piece of music? And we, we, we engage them in meaning, discussions of meaning or of the past. And actually, they are much more turning toward what I could call mystery, you know, the unknowable, the, the land of unanswerable questions. Yeah? And in that company, excuse me, in that territory, we are, we are all um, explorers. And the best thing we can do is sit beside someone. 
you know, not opposite them, but right beside them and look at it as you two, I can imagine we're doing on a park, on a bench or sitting in your car, looking out at the sky. Yeah. A beautiful image. Right? That's an exquisite way of being with somebody, you know, to let them find what's true for them. It doesn't matter what I think about dying. It matters what do they think. Yeah, I think that side by side thing is interesting. That's part of what being in a car, ironically, yeah. forced or created because you know you're not zeroing in on somebody with some kind of expectation. You know, we had there was a woman I worked with. She was a Christian scientist. She was 90 years old. One of the most loving people I'd ever met, and she was ready to die. She just she just described it as I just want to lay my head in the lap of Jesus. That's how she put it. <laughs> And it was beautiful and uh, no, no fear. And then her granddaughter came to see her. And her granddaughter was very well-meaning and wonderful. And she said, Grandma, I read a book. And the book said that you don't have to worry when you die because everybody who has ever died before you will be there to meet you. And they'll, they'll embrace you in their arms. And Grandma got terrified. Grandma got really scared, you know. Because this, what was true for Grandma that she hadn't told anyone, but she told me, was that her husband, Edgar, had been beating her for the last 10 years of their marriage, and he had died five years before. And now she was scared, really scared, to spend eternity with him. So I don't try to impose my ideas on other people. I explore with them. I find out what is it that matters to them, you know, what, what, what's their story about it, you know, and how does that story comfort them or scare them? So we've been talking about death as a you know final physical death mm-hmm. but um it seems there are all kinds of deaths all the time in a way that that's what you're what you've learned and are learning to embrace and what you're asking us to embrace you know i think for example of how um much fear we have of getting a diagnosis that mm. might, it might not be the end of our life, but let's say we got diagnosed with, uh, you know, a serious debilitating disease that is going to change our life or one of our children that's diagnosed mm. with that. So we, we kind of have a consciousness of the ideal life is lived in a protective bubble. Mm. Uh, you know, and you so often I find I think this about my children and my grandchildren that um, even though I know that the great power of human life is resilience mm. and that it's necessary, life is practically requires vicissitudes, nevertheless, there's this kind of a fantasy dream of no pain and and um, somebody asks us how are things going and we talk about all the wonderful things that are happening mm-hmm. and you know everything's tallying up great um, that's a pretty deep-seated habit that television commercials and you know so much gets so much uh, there's so much reinforcement for that mm-hmm. uh, protective bubble um, how does one begin to wear down that habit a bit 
and come to understand in a in a in, in not just a cognitive way, mm. but going leaning toward the, ex the pain that exists in life is the most valuable way to be. Yeah. Well, as you say, I don't think we can just persuade ourselves of this, you know, cognitively, because it doesn't make any sense to us. It feels counterintuitive, actually. But, you know, I, I always, I talk about this this way. I say life and death are a package deal. You can't pull them apart, you know. And so when we face that reality, when we know that that's so, then we know that death isn't something waiting for us at the end of a long road, but it's in the marrow of every moment, right? Mostly we imagine death will come later, yeah? And later gives us this comfortable illusion of a safe distance from death, you know? But constant change, impermanence, as they speak about in Buddhism, it's not later. It's right now. It, it, it changes the norm. So one of the things that reflection on death can do is show us something about constant change, that everything is coming and going, yeah? Mm. I used to be blonde, you know? It's not there anymore, you know? Gravity's having its way with my body, you know? Uh, there's constant change. And so when I recognize that, when I recognize that that's the nature of life, all life, yeah, then um, I relax a little bit, you know? I don't hold things so tightly. I don't take myself so seriously. I don't hold my ideas so permanently, you know? And I recognize that we're all in the boat together and it engenders a certain kind of kindness for one another, you know? Um, uh, so I think to live in harmony with what's true brings us great relief, actually. And what's true is constant change. Yeah? You know, not just death at some later junction, constant change all the time. We like to think of ourselves as a solid thing moving through a changing world. You know, we say seasons come and go, you know, relationships come and go. But, you know, I'm the one thing that doesn't come and go, right? Frank, my, my solid sense of self, right? But even that's subject to constant change. Yeah. So this is one of the things that we discover in the time of dying, that all the ways we've defined ourselves, all the ways, the roles that we've carried, um, all of those are either stripped away by illness or gracefully given up. And then we have to find something much more essential about who we are. You know? and, um, and that's both the challenge and the great beauty of the dying process. Yeah. You know, you were saying that, you know, we can't convince ourselves um, to uh, embrace pain, um, that it's not just an exercise of cognitively persuading ourselves. So you're um, more than a bit of a leader in terms of um, encouraging um, these kinds of approaches and attitudes in uh, caregiving. You've given mm. talks all over the country, in the world, in fact, trainings, mm. the Meta Institute. Um, and now you have a book. So, <laughs> well, watch out, I could be an expert here. <laughs> That's dangerous. Look, be a thought leader. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, so look, Barry, it, it's so you know. Approach other than trying to persuade people in that you know to present arguments. Because yeah. often you present an argument, and that's how people shut down. And so, how are you? 
Well, I, I think as you've seen in our conversation here that uh, I tend to be a storyteller. And I think the stories are wonderful because people can enter them wherever they need to and leave them wherever they want to. And they can pull from the story whatever they, most, they find most valuable. You know, when I was a little boy, five years old, I was playing with a pocket knife, you know, and, uh, you know, as little boys will do. And I cut my finger really bad, cut my hand really bad. And I came into the house bleeding, you know, and uh, called for my mother. And my mother came and, and, and did a great thing. She embraced me, first of all. She held me. And she called, held me close on her lap. And then she said, we need the magic towel. We need the magic towel. So I said, well, okay. You know, I was scared. And so she pulls this towel off the kitchen stove and wraps it around my hand, you know. And this was a beautiful thing. It was really a way of showing how we could go toward our pain and hold it kindly and lovingly, you know. And that was beautiful. And that, in a way, that is enough. But she did something more spectacular. So at one point, she said, should we unwrap the towel and look at the pain, look at the wound? Yeah. And so she slowly unwrapped the towel. And we looked into the wound. And I could see that it, I was okay. That I could look into a wound and I would be okay. Yeah. That the wound wouldn't have to define me. It wouldn't be all that I am. Yeah. Now, that was a five-year-old boy learning that lesson. Yeah. But I think that we can do that in other ways in our life, you know. When we look at our pain, let's just say it's, you know, uh, we've got a bad sore back, you know, or we've got a knee that's bugging us. When we look at it, really look at it closely, carefully. First of all, we see it's not one big solid thing, right? It's moment-to-moment -moment experiences, a moment of heat, a moment of tingling, a moment of pressure. There's, we can explore it and see that it's not um, one big more one big uh, mass of pain, yeah? And then we begin to look at it and we start to see, oh, the way I'm relating to it matters, right? When I'm scared of it and keep trying to keep it at arm's length, the pain, the resistance seems to make the pain worse. So I begin to study my relationship with pain. I begin to understand something about it. And I do that with the small pains of my life. You know, you, you can't start doing it on, the, on your deathbed. It's too late in the game. So you have to practice now. And I think that a warm, loving attention toward our pain, not with the intention to get it to go away, but to get to know it, become intimate. Say about mindfulness, Frank, and you know, mindfulness has become a very widely used word and has come to mean a lot of things. And we um, picky about how it's used, as long as it brings benefit to somebody in some way. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes mindfulness is thought of as um, almost like a nanny state of the mind, you know, <laughs> trying to keep things together and pay close attention. Um, you seem to be describing something that has to do with, like as you were saying, you know, walking into the wound, it has a kind of an intimacy about it or uh, a warm, you know, it's automatically uh, has some warmth in it. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's, there are all these words out there, you know, that are bantered about in the spiritual circles, enlightenment and awakening and realization and things like this. And, you know, they're all fine, but they all feel a little far away to me. You know, they all feel distant and like something I have to achieve. So when I describe myself, I don't, when I describe my practice, I don't even describe it as mindfulness. I just describe it as intimacy. It's a way of me becoming intimate with myself and the world, to become familiar you know, to come to know it in an intimate way where there's not so much distance between me and the thing that's, that's in front of me. There was a guy that we worked with, his name was Carl, he was kind of a grandfather figure for me, beautiful man. 
and um, he had stomach cancer and he had a morphine pump to manage his pain, but he wanted to use meditation to manage his pain. Now, meditation is great, but it doesn't necessarily take away stomach pain. So uh, I said, okay, well, I'll, 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 he said, could you teach me? And I said, sure. So I, I did kind of what we were talking about a moment ago. I brought his attention to the experience of the pain, to the minute sensations of the pain, but it was too much for him. It just blew him out. You know, he just screamed, oh, it's too much. It hurts too much. So I said, okay. I said, let's try something else. I said, let me just put my hands on you. So I put my hands on his belly. Now, this was totally intuitive for Eric. And I said, how's that? And he said, oh, it still hurts. So I pulled my hands away a little further, made a little bit more space. How's that? Oh, it still hurts. So I pulled my hands very far away. I said, how's that? And he said, oh, that's lovely. That's lovely. And I said, oh, could you rest there for a minute? And then out of his mouth, not mine, he said, rest in love. Rest in love. Yeah. Now, from then on, whenever he got into pain, he'd push his morphine pump and then repeat to himself, rest in love, rest in love, yeah? I didn't do any California woo-woo stuff. There was no special energy work being done here. I didn't do any healer stuff. We just made space for the pain. And whatever we give space to can move, yeah? Whatever we give space to can move. And that includes the physical sensations of pain. Um, so, you know, whenever this guy would... When his wife would come over and, and she was a little nervous, you know, he just lean, you know, put his hand through the bed rail and put his hand on her knee and say, oh, darling, rest in love, rest in love. So that's a, that's a way we could talk about bringing the heart, the heart into mindfulness, yeah? To really bring the natural compassion of our good hearts uh, into relationship uh, with whatever it is that's difficult for us. It's not enough just to be interested in the sensations or interested in the state of mind. You know, that's not enough. We need love too. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're going to go to a, a mountain lake that we love, you know, it's great that we love the lake and we need that love to go to the lake. That's the fuel for the journey. But it's not enough to love the lake. You got to love the walk up the mountain. Yeah. Otherwise, when the mosquitoes come out, you'll, you'll run away, right? You'll, you'll turn back. So mindfulness practice is not about achieving some particular state, some enlightened state. It's about becoming intimate all along the way. And that is an action of not just interest, but of love. You know, you were saying that that's beautiful, by the way, of course. <laughs> and you were saying that, um, you know, whatever we um, give space to can move. Yeah. But I think you also point out that within space, you find stillness that you don't necessarily have to try to manufacture in the way like I want to calm myself down. Yeah. Within that space, there's actually a stillness there already, no? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the misunderstandings about mindfulness, you know, that we use it just to calm the body, you know. Look, if the only thing that was necessary in our life was to have a calm body, we could take, you know, Morphine, it would calm us down right away, you know. I don't think that's the intention of this life, you know. I think this life is to grow in wisdom. So um, we need some stability to look. And so watching the breath, sensing the body, those are things that we can do to stabilize. But then we have to turn toward the experience and really get engaged, you know, really get engaged. And, and with the intention of learning, yeah, 
not with the intention of getting something to go away, not using, not appropriating the mindfulness to do the work of, um, um, of a personality that wants so badly to reestablish, you know, um, non-change, constancy. Yeah. So, so yeah, use the use the mind to learn. Use the mind to learn. You've talked uh, about you know a lot about um, what we can do personally. Uh, as one last question, I'd like to mm -hmm. ask you to to talk about the bigger picture of of healthcare in America and in the world. What what are one or two things, or ways, or means that the, the kind of approaches you're talking about could come into uh, healthcare? Uh, oh gosh, you know, there's so much we could say about this, Barry, but you know, look, the great fear that emerges for everybody, even when they have, you know, um, a, a temporary illness, is the fear that it will get worse. Right? And if it gets worse, well, then it could end in dying. So I, I think that the reflection on dying is, first of all, very life-affirming. It helps us to see what matters most to us. And also, as we confront our relationship to death, and we become more familiar with it, when we sit down with it and have a cup of tea, get to know it really well, you know, um, we can incorporate, start incorporating the lessons that it has to offer us. And I think that's important in healthcare. You know, we're still seeing death as failure we st in healthcare. We're still imagining that death is, a pr is the problem to be avoided at all costs. And so the only thing we think about it is how do we make the best of a bad situation? And when we do that, we devalue the dying process and we devalue the person who's going through the dying process. So that's the first thing. The second is that, you know, I do something really simple when I'm teaching docs and nurses. I teach them how to breathe with somebody else. Really simple. They breathe in, patient breathes in, you breathe in with them. Patient breathes out, you breathe out with them. Very simple activity. And what it establishes is a kind of intimacy between the two. You know, when I do that with docs and nurses for just two minutes, they feel an entirely different experience in the relationship. And I thought, wow, if we want to reform healthcare, wouldn't this be a remarkable thing to do, you know? I mean, suppose that when we went into a patient's room, we actually were with them. When we felt their pulse for 30 seconds, we actually were with them, you know? And we weren't looking at our watch or out the window or about the next patient we were going to see. So bringing presence, quality of presence into healthcare, I think is essential. And it's one of the things that I've been working on for the last 30 years is teaching docs and nurses, therapists, social workers, chaplains, how to stay present, how to stay in the room when the going gets rough. Yeah. Well, thank you, Frank. Thank you for doing that work and may that expand. Um, I think um, obviously it could make a very big difference. Um, so it's been uh, such a pleasure, as always, to talk with you. And uh, I hope lots of people can uh, pick up your book. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I want to emphasize that the book is not about taking care of the dying. It's really about what do you learn there that can help you live a life that's meaningful and full, you know. And, um, and that's why I wrote it, because it's too late at the time of dying. I mean, to imagine at the time of dying that we will have the physical strength, the emotional stability, the mental clarity to do the work of a lifetime is a ridiculous gamble.